Hi, I'm Jen. And I'm Jen. Welcome to Marginalia Pod, where we treat reading as a sacred practice and find meaning and connection through our favorite books. I would like to begin by acknowledging the Gurungai and Daru people, traditional custodians of the land where I am recording today, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I'd also like to acknowledge Tangata Whenua of Tara, where I'm recording today. Well, special episode, um, one shot this week. So we're looking at Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet through the themes of passion and folly. I love our themes. I love that they just spoke to us and we had to choose them. It was so much fun to watch it looking for specific instances of passion. Yeah, and folly as well, because who oh boy, there's a <laughs> lot of that. <laughs> I, we were just speaking about how I'm making a claim that Benvolio has the only brain cell in the entire production. Like, he's the mm. only one with the brain cell of the entire cast. And I would just like to... That's my thesis for for folly. I, th- <laughs> I think that is really fair. Like, he's the only one who's constantly trying to mitigate things, put some reason onto things. Mm. But no. Doesn't take, unfortunately. No. Nobody listens to him. Um, oh. So I have a little theme story about passion. Great. If that would be okay. It's a very short one. Mm-hmm. Um so one of the problems I have as a person with ADHD um, is that I love to start projects, but I'm really bad at keeping track of them or finishing them or I get overwhelmed or I get stuck. And so they just languish and like they weigh on me that they're not done. And I feel like a failure and it's a whole thing. So back in the day when I was first starting in talk therapy, my then therapist, Nisha, said, why don't you start a passion project book that way you can keep track of everything. So I picked up uh, Leuchtturm because they are the best. And the reason I chose it is because it has a table of contents. So I can write down where my things are and also tick them off if I want to. And it has become the place that I go where I'm doing a lot of, like, especially for quilting. I can write down where I'm up to. I can put a date on my latest progress. If I do like the little pieces where I cut them out, sometimes I'll cut wow. a piece out that I'm supposed to be assembling and stick it to the little bag. I can then stick it into the journal as I'm finished sewing so I know that it's done. Um, I've put all sorts of things in here. I've got progress bars and it's like a bujo but for my quilting. It's amazing. Having a book to put all of my passion projects in was such an obvious answer but it really helped because it gave me a place to like start from and know what I was doing and that way when I go back I'll know exactly where this this project is meant to be and what colors to use of what fabrics and like I I can start it and finish it at any point because I've got the notes right here in one place and it's a really nice happy color and it just it reminds me that even though I do feel very passionate about making stuff it's good to have some sort of order to the chaos like it doesn't have to be this emotional thing it can be something that I love doing, but there's it's okay to have some order with it too. Oh, I love that. Yeah, just a really useful tool and I just love it. So That's great. Thank you so much for sharing. I think that's so important because often when you do that kind of ordered thinking around things, people just go, Oh, well that's not passion anymore, then it becomes work, right? Mm-hmm. But it's just a it's just another step to getting the project delivered. It's just another yeah. thing you have to do. So I love that. Thanks. And it's nice because instead of it being overwhelming to look at the things I need to do, everything is organized so I can flip through it and be inspired because I've made it look nice. Mm. So when I'm looking at it, instead of seeing it like, oh, this is a project I've failed to complete, I see, oh, here's a project that I really love the colors of. I should go dig that out and work on it. Yeah. And you won't like sit there being like, what? What, what I wanted to do? Like, what was I thinking when I started yeah. this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. One of my big maxims is invest in future laziness. And this is definitely <laughs> part of that. So Amazing. Well, that's great. Great passion story. Thank you. Now, do you have a story about folly? 
I do. I, what I've realised is that I really love the word folly. I just like the way it sounds. It's fun to say. It just rolls off the tongue. I'm really into it. I just really like folly. It is a great word. <laughs> I was thinking about folly, you know, as foolishness or a lack of foresight and or good sense. Mm. Um, so I was starting to think of that in my own life. And I think I'm a pretty sensible and practical person for the most part. But I do have moments where I go completely off script. Like sometimes it just the urge just takes me and I turn into a complete fool. Um, one moment that I really lamented as a foolish act was when I was in my younger days, I'd have these wild nights out and they would inevitably lead to bad decisions because of course they do. And including in one memorable instance where I insisted on buying an entire bar around of Jaeger bombs. So for those who don't know, Jaeger bombs are shots of Red Bull and Jaeger and they're vile, but they were very trendy and like, the late 2000s, early 2010s. Like, I would never willingly choose to have a Jaeger bomb, but for some reason, towards the end of an evening, this is just what happened. And I always got really annoyed because they would never give you the full can of Red Bull, and I just feel like I paid for it, so why am I only getting a little bit? Like, give me the can. They would never give me the can. It's really um, funny. I don't know why I decided to do this for an entire bar. It's unclear, you know, does not compute. I was just adamant that I was going to do it. And even though we were all in a bit of a state, all my friends who were out with me were like, this is a bad idea. Don't do this. Don't do this thing. This is a terrible <laughs> idea. And nevertheless, I persisted. I was like, no, we're doing this. <laughs> and I just have this really hazy memory of like trays of these shots just going out past me, like as they went into the bar. And, oh, you know, it was all fun and games until the next morning when I was like a bit hungover and I rolled over to check my bank balance because oh, no. like, why, 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 why? And like, why do we do these foolish things when people tell you it's a bad idea? It's just, it's it's folly. It's madness. It's a lesson to be learned. Luckily, I'm older now, so I will no longer do these things. <laughs> it was just a real moment of like, I love everyone in this bar. I'm buying everyone some <laughs> drinks. But anyway. you did, you survived. And now I have the story, so it's appropriate. It was just a very particular moment, a very small window in my life where I just crammed in as much of this nonsense as I could, and now it's done. I love it. And I love you. You're great. Oh, thanks. I love you too. Did you have a moment of wonder this week? Oh, I did. Um, So Harry Potter class is back on. I don't usually speak up. Like, I've, I finally installed Zoom on my laptop so I can now, like, use the chat. So I, I'm in the habit of not speaking up. And sometimes I don't even go to small group, but I decide I thought I kind of said, oh, I don't want to today. And then I thought, you know what? I will. It's going to be a smaller group and it'll be fine. And it was actually really good. And I got to speak up. And so we always read through the theme of love. And my comment was that I think Dumbledore in the sixth book, by not getting rid of Trelawney or Ferenz, was actually demonstrating love by mm -hmm. keeping them in a safe place, like allowing them to both have a home, which was as protected as Hogwarts, because... Sybil Trelawney was at risk because she she was the one who prophesied the thing about Voldemort and Harry. Mm. And Ferenz is now an outcast, so he can't go back to live with the centaurs because they're racist as well. So we often talk about how much Dumbledore messes up and fails, but he does actually show love without demonstrating it. And I think that's really important to note that he's a very flawed person, but he still cares very much for the people under his, I guess, purview. Yeah, I think that's really worthy of noting as well, because... 
there's a real trend to just dismiss Dumbledore, who has done very terrible things. Let's not gloss over that. Oh, yeah. But he still has moments of real caring and real wisdom as well. Because, yeah. yeah, it's not black and white. Everyone's flawed. Yeah. I mean, that's the same section where I was like, why didn't he just tell Harry that he knows that Malfoy is being tasked with something? Yeah, I mean. Just say it. Just say, look, I'm aware of the situation with Draco and I've got it. Please don't worry about it. Yes. I know what he's up to. Yeah, no. Nah. Communicating with Harry is not allowed. Yeah, why tell him something when he could just get angry about something unrelated for months on end? Delightful. Yeah, anyway. Um, how about you? Did you have a moment of wonder? <laughs> I did have a moment of wonder. So I went back to the office this week and Yay. so Wellington has this food festival every August called Wellington on a Plate where basically for two weeks all the restaurants put on fancy three-course dinners and stuff that you can go to and then for the following two weeks they do special burgers usually based around a theme and so like this year I think there were 240 odd restaurants just producing these burgers. That's the burger thing? It's like a two-week thing? Yeah. I'll be there next year. You should definitely come. It's amazing. Um, This year, because we went into lockdown before they could really kick off, I think they had two days of burgers and then we went into lockdown. They Aww. extended it, so it's going until the 3rd of October. So this week, with my teammates, we went and we had two burgers, one on Wednesday for lunch and then one on Friday for lunch, just because it was such a nice day. We're like, let's just go out and have food. Um, And it was just really nice to get out and just chill and do this thing. And you feel like such a hero because you're supporting your local hospitality scene and you get to have a delicious burger. Oh, I love amazing burger times. And I'm so glad you get to go back to work. I We, we keep hearing that if we get to 80% double vaccinated, things will start opening up again. But it's just like... It'll happen eventually. Someday. Um, should I give the summary of the film? Yes, please. Okay, so we watched Romeo and Juliet directed by Baz Luhrmann. So this is the classic story of Romeo and Juliet set in a modern day city, Verona Beach, where the Montagues and Capulets run two rival business empires and their various hangers on cause mayhem on the streets. When Romeo Montague crashes a party and falls for Juliet Capulet, they enlist the help of Father Lawrence to help them find a way to pursue the love they know their families won't approve of. Meanwhile, Juliet's cousin Tybalt and Roman Romeo's friend Mercutio act like fools and complicate everything. All hell breaks loose. Romeo ends up banished, Juliet is betrothed to Paris, and Father Lawrence makes a series of bewildering decisions that ultimately end in tragedy. They are bewildering. <laughs> yes, yes, and I I think I have a slightly more generous reading of why he makes those bewildering decisions, but... Oh, I feel for him. I feel for a lot of people, because I think people are just so sick of Romeo's emo nonsense. <laughs> like, he is, like, like I said before, the OG emo. He's just walking around, writing his poetry, falling in love with women he's never spoken to, and then, I don't know, waxing lyrically about her to everyone who will stand still long enough. So poor Father Lawrence has heard all about it. Benvolio and Mercutio no doubt have heard all about it. And they're mm. just like, oh, for the love of... Oh, stop! Yeah, I love that his mom is really worried about him. My favourite parents in the set are probably the Montague parents because they like their kid, but they aren't trying to continue this... Mm. I don't feel like the antipathy is proactive on their part, if that makes sense. Mm. It feels very much like the Capulets are the ones really driving to this. Yeah. Mm. And that's mostly because of Tybalt. Well, yeah, but I, so one of the things I wanted to talk about in terms of passion is that it actually shows up in like three different ways, right? So mm -hmm. you have the like love, the amorous passion, uh, which is what we think of when someone's like passionate about something, they feel intensely about it. But it's also hatred, right? Like mm. Tybalt's it's emotions. Yeah, he's he's very passionate in his hatred for the Montagues. But then there's like the older classic meaning of passion, which is like literally the suffering of Christ, like the passion oh, of the, the Christ. Passion of, right. yeah. And because there's so much religious 
imagery, but specifically Catholic mm. imagery, it actually kind of fits in with what's happening in the in the text. Like visually in the text, we're seeing a lot of the imagery that supports that, like very Catholic, very strict. So you know, you get the sense that these people really live and die by their religion. Mm. But their code, their moral code is different in a way that like you couldn't just date somebody. You have to be married to them. Like you have to get married. Mm. That's that's a really important thing. But like you can just go and kill a member of the opposite family. Yeah, for chill. No yeah. reason. Just go for it. One thing I really um, took from watching it, the only people that are armed are like the the gentlemen, right? Like the, the mm. higher up folks. So none of the mm. like street people are armed. Only the wealthy, only the landed gentry have guns. Mm, interesting. Yeah. So I think that there's an exception for these families that their violence causes all of these problems and that explains why um, police captain prince is so like determined to stop them yeah and doesn't he say at the end like when it's all wrapping up he's like for me and for me for winking at your discourse mm. i've lost a, a brace of kinsmen so he acknowledges the fact that he's kind of like yeah he's trying to clean it up but he's also allowed it for a very yeah. long time you know he's like winked at the discourse i i assume that it's like letting corruption happen basically I did actually, just while we're on the topic of Captain Prince, I thought the idea of banishing Romeo is kind of a folly on his part, I think. Because he, I don't know, please, no, did you really think he was going to stay away? Like, did you think that was going to be the end of it? It just seems very foolish to be like, yeah, we'll banish him. Yeah, like how insular is the city? It, it's the one part of the movie I feel like doesn't sit within the modern, there's no way to tell that he came back to Verona. Yeah, that's true. They just locate him by sheer will, I guess. Oh, he's back in the city walls. Yeah, but they have to know to look for Balthazar's car. Anyway, um, yeah, that... That always has that has always bothered me. That's always been a part of the film that I'm like, how did they know? How did they? Who told them? Mm. But yeah, it's interesting because the way that it's set, right? So Verona is you know, it's a city, but it's not of our world really. Like it's an alternate universe mm. almost. Like it's not real world. The time is not real time, but it is. And it's not just that you have people speaking Shakespearean English in a modern setting. The entire world is Shakespearean. Yeah. Like the billboards are Shakespearean. Everything is like got yeah. the same language. It's a lot of intertextuality where they take lines from other plays as well. Yeah, the through. advertising just, material. Yeah, it's so interesting. I, when I listened to the director's commentary, um, I, I need to say like we, we all talk about how great Baz Luhrmann is, especially those of us who grew up watching the Red Curtain trilogy. And I will like Strictly mm -hmm. Ballroom is one of my favorite movies, and it is a hill I will die on because I love it so much. <laughs> oh, but it's so it good! It is so good. It's what like it's one of the best movies I think. But it's worth talking about the set director Catherine Martin and the costume designer Kim Barrett, um, and the editor Jill Bilkoff. She did a fantastic job editing it. It really does have that frantic feel but the set mm. direction and the costume design together form so much of what the text is saying so it was filmed in it's meant to be kind of like Miami but it was filmed in like Veracruz and Mexico, Mexico City okay. yeah. yeah so you get this sense of like you know they're on they're in this beachside town it's like a Venice beach kind of pre-gentrification but like the rich kids are hanging out there because it's kind of cool mm. so there's this juxtaposition between like wealth and privilege and like the haves and have-nots mm. And you also have this extreme weather because the set was destroyed because a hurricane was coming and they actually filmed at the start of the hurricane. That was when Mercutio died. So that actually lends mm. a lot to it, um, which you get these amazing like the palm trees are swaying and <laughs> like their clothes are being mm. whipped off their body from the actual wind. Like it's crazy that the environment they were in worked so much for them. But just even the clothing, the clothing designs, like, I can't get mm. over it. Like they're so good. So major props to the set direction and the costume design because... I think it says so much about the world with that. Like, even though there's a lot of inconsistency within the text, the visual continuity that I needed was 
provided by the set direction and yeah. the clothing choices. Mm, I think that was very well done. And I think that also carries through into the music, mm. right? Because you can't really talk about Baz Luhrmann's films without talking about the way that he uses music. And particularly in this, because he was so involved in the soundtrack and he sort of shoulder tapped people to write songs for like the Like Radiohead. Film. Yeah, Radiohead and Desiree mm. as well. Like Kissing You was written specially oh, for it. And so she wrote that. Um Everclear wrote their one as well for the film. And then that, you know, when we meet the Montague boys, the boys, the boys, Mm -hmm. I love that. And their pretty piece of flesh is playing, which of course is a reference to a pound of flesh from Merchant of Venice. And so you have this real like intertextuality that comes through that really ties this world together. Like we've not just plonked Shakespeare into a modern setting. This is their world. This is how they use the language. This is just who and what they are. And I think it's so clever. This film gets a lot of criticism for not being real Shakespeare, but I think it is actually really good Shakespeare. Well, and the whole point of Shakespeare was that he was an everyman entertainer, right? So the whole point was not that he was this highbrow guy who would only entertain the landed gentry. The globe was for the masses. Absolutely. You could go if you could go. Like, that was the whole point of it. So it does have a lot of low humor and high humor because out of necessity of catering to everybody, it does. Well, I mean, this particular play is such a balance of extremes right you've mm. got the high yumi you've got the low yumi you've got the tragedy but you've got really comedic moments yeah. you've got like privilege against violence you've got all these things playing off yeah. against each other one extreme to the other shakespeare should not be a drag if you're no. watching shakespeare and it's taking too long then it's not a good production you should be involved in it you should watch and enjoy the story like it should get you and engage you and even if you don't understand 100 percent of it you should still know what's going on that's good shakespeare and this you get it you know yeah and i just also say like if you you've tried to read Shakespeare in the past and you think oh it's just not for me I don't get it highly recommend watching a production like I did not get Shakespeare until I went to see my first play and it revolutionized my interaction Mm -hmm. with the text like I love it now when I lived in London I used to go to the globe all the time just because I could and yeah it's just so great to see it live like yeah yeah, once you get it you get it we did the pop-up globe oh I love the pop-up globe it was so good we saw Macbeth and Mm. I was completely blown away by it I love going to see Shakespeare and I do think that if you get the opportunity you should see it but if you can't see it this particular film is a good place to start and the other one I the other two I really love are Much Ado with Kenneth Branagh Mm. because Emma Thompson is amazing and um yeah Midsummer Night's Dream which is just fun Oh, Midsummer Night's Dream is the best one. It doesn't even have a moral. Like, what's the moral? That was weird. Let's carry Everybody on. Everybody gets to be in love with the right people at the end, and it works, and I'm okay with that. Sometimes you need that in a play. Yeah. Um. But this is so good. Like, it's so quick, right? This is, the story unfolds so rapidly. Mm. Yeah, it's exactly two hours long. Two hours traffic of our yeah. stage. It's two hours long to the dot. And they do cut a lot out of the original play, but it still makes perfect sense. I haven't seen a production that is not this one in so long. I couldn't tell you what they've cut out. I've actually not seen any other Romeo and Juliet's. This is the only one. See, I studied it in school. I studied it in year 10. So I should know a bit more about it. But I think we had to watch the 1963 one, which is sort of like the seminal one that everybody refers to. It's fine. I did watch the one that came out in 2013 uh, with Haley Steinfeld because it looked interesting. But it was set in period and I was like Mm. it just didn't grab me and keep me the way I wanted to be grabbed and kept yeah I just I think this one because what it captures is that kind of recklessness that foolishness Mm. that speed that kind of like fire and passion right like that is both the passion of love and the passion of hate but the folly of that passion too right absolutely yeah like they just needed to Um, all chill out for like a week (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the folly of Romeo just straight away downing some poison. Like, just wait literally two seconds. Just calm down. Just wait. No. No. It, it's, no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
it really jumped out at me this time when, you know, Romeo goes to see Father Lawrence and he's, like, talking to him about, will you marry us? And he's kind of like, what about Rosaline? Oh, you've just moved on mm. from that. Okay, then. And then he agrees to marry them. And Romeo sort of trips over himself and falls into that candelabra. Yeah. And he's like, wisely and slowly, they stumble that run fast. And I'm like, that is literally this entire story. Yeah. They stumble, that run fast. Yeah. So I, I, I want to go back to the passion. I want to focus a little bit on their first kiss in, in the elevator, right? Mm-hmm. There are a few cinematic things that are as perfect as them escaping and going up and down in an elevator just to kiss. And like the camera going around and like technically I think that must have been a very difficult shot. But I love that you get this sense of intimacy and like they're running and hiding because they end up running and hiding from their identity or, you know, from their family in order to do this thing to be with each other. So it really sets the tone, right? Like they're never going to be allowed to Mm -hmm. just be who they are and be with who they want to be with. Yeah, it's a nice little circular moment, right? That calls back to what happens in the end. Another one of those that jumped out to me is that when Makusho gives Romeo the little tablet that he takes and he has his little drug trip. Well, we assume. Have we had it tested? (laughs) How pure is it? That's what the drug test is. Please go to the tents at the music festivals. Like, I'm not going to judge you for doing the drugs, but please be safe. Yeah, please get them tested. There's a real shortage at the moment, guys. I'm just saying a lot of what you think is MDMA is not actually MDMA. So go get it tested so that you can be safe. That is my PSA and today. also, if a paramedic is there and you've got a friend and you know what they've taken, tell the paramedic. They're not the cops. They don't care. Yeah, you won't get in trouble, I promise you. Write it on your arm if you have to, honestly. If you're going to be taking illicit substances, yeah. be safe about it. So Romeo did none of that. <laughs> none of that. He just took this random tablet that Makushio gave him. Had a bad trip at the Capulet Mansion. You know, he has the line that says the drugs are mm. quick. Which is what he traditionally says during his death scene. Yeah. He says the drugs are quick and then thus with a kiss I die. So I love that they put that in the, the ballroom scene and the ball scene yeah. because that going to the ball is a folly, right? Like the whole act, that is where it all goes wrong. And Romeo thinks so before they go. He has this real sense of dread yeah. about doing this thing. And then you've got this callback to what is eventually going to happen. Because we always know that it's going to end in ter- tragedy, you know, from the very first opening yeah. scene. The prologue is repeated twice, which is the other thing mm. you get used to the language that way but it also then tells you the story so you already have it spoiled for you in a way before you fall in love with the characters before you know what the stakes are you're already told what's going to happen um, mm. and it's a warning against folly and against that kind of passion but it also gives you yeah. the, like it's the pricey of like this is why these idiots did away with themselves because their parents are also idiots yeah true yeah it's <laughs> not just one idiot yeah. doing it's one a whole, thing it's a collection whole city full of idiots and then there's one person <laughs> a brace with a brain cell which is Finvol <laughs> Poor he's just trying to keep everybody from fighting the whole time he's like peace i just want peace just want to sit and have a beer on the beach with my kinsman and not get into a fight and has to be so extra being like peace i hate the word he's so good the more i watched the more i became convinced that tybalt's passion has to be funneled outward Okay, so I think that this is a lot of Fulgencio, right? This is Lord Capulet. Mm. He has had the reins of his family so tight that any passion has to be funneled outward as hatred for the Montagues because you can't go against Fulgencio, right? When Tybalt Mm. tries to, he gets slapped and told to go to bed Mm. like a child. Mm. And we already know that he's tupping Lady Capulet, right? That weird thing is happening because they do that weird passionate kiss on the ballroom floor and then like she's weeping over his dead body and it's very dramatic and that's pretty awful and public and would have embarrassed Fulgencio, right? Like I I think honestly that is part of the reason why like he's so ashamed of that coming to light 
and being like a public thing that he wants no more mention of Tybalt at all, which is why he's like, let's let's marry my daughter off. Let's get something else in like, I don't know, the news cycle. Mm, some positive Yeah, PR. yeah, get, get something else happening to like get everybody's mind off of this guy dying because it's really fresh. So I think that all of the passion that Tybalt has, it has to go somewhere. He's a very passionate person. And so it goes outward in rage to the, to the Montagues. He can't, I, I think it's misplaced. I think if he could be enraged with Fulcancio, he would, but he can't. So he has to point it at somewhere. Mm, yeah I think he's just also he's so dramatic he's so full of flair mm. like the way that he fights you know he's like a matador it's all performance he's like throwing his shoulders back he's you know a duelist yeah yeah, yeah. it's uh, flamenco inspired I think but even then there's like a set of rules to it right when they're doing yeah. the duel when he's trying to duel with Romeo and Romeo won't fight him he's furious mm. because that's not the way it works that is not honorable that's not how you duel that's not the code right like that's not how yeah, you do so it yeah so whenever that strictness that order is gone he flounders he's doesn't really know what to do with it but then Mercutio really understands him mm. like he has that whole spiel where he like writes him basically a sonnet about how amazing Tybalt is and like you guys should just hook up yeah. and then you'll both feel better about everything yeah probably Mercutio is an interesting character because he's mercurial like his name he's either mm. like the life of the party or he's like a fountain of rage but he's also the other so he's not a Montague mm. or a Capulet but he travels freely within both circles he's depicted in the film wearing drag like that's how we see him he's very flamboyant he's very comfortable in who he is like no one's like ooh. everyone thinks it's funny like when he gives romeo his invitation he pulls it out from between his legs and romeo thinks mm. it's hilarious like he's laughing his face off so i mean they're very close and like they all accept him and love him as he is but he's still angry about something which to me speaks of like either deep hurts or unrequited love and i'm guessing that he's in love with romeo i feel like the text supports that I feel the fact that he is so angry about the fact that Romeo's always either sad about what he thinks is Rosaline yeah. or like running off after her. Like he's so angry when Romeo runs away after the ball yeah. when they're trying to leave, right? And he makes this comment about Rosaline and Romeo's like, oh, he jests at scars. What is the line? He jests at scars that never felt a wound. That's right. Well, I mean, you have been talking his ear off about this girl for ages, so it's not his fault that he thinks you care about it because you've been acting like you care, but never mind. But I think that that was kind of a reverse right I think that Mercutio is the one with the wounds and he doesn't get the chance to let them scar over yeah well let's talk about the Queen Mab speech because it's one of my all-time yes, favorite please scenes like I break also... this down for me because I always get lost in it I just love it so much like my copy of the play falls open to that page because that is my favorite Yay. scene it's this whole bit where you know they want to go to the ball and then Romeo says we shouldn't go you know I dreamt a dream last night also that I what was yours that dream is often yeah. lie in bed while you do dream things true I see Queen Mab has been with you and then he does of this whole thing where he basically just monologues and it's like really intense and it starts off light because it's supposed to be about dreams being silly and ridiculous yeah. and to give them any weight is silly and ridiculous just like you know Romeo's infatuation with Rosaline is ridiculous and to care about dreams is just nonsense and you shouldn't but then it turns really dark and this particular performance of it is so intense and so simmering and volatile mm -hmm. like you really feel Mercutio losing himself in it and it's just so much anger that simmers near the surface and I yeah you just get this feeling that there is so much there that he is just not telling Romeo that he's just like harboring did Harold Perrineau win anything for this role I feel like he should have gotten an Oscar or something because oh I he, know like every expression on his face is so perfect like second to second it's perfect it's just amazing like the scene where he shoots the gun after the nurse turns yes. up to get Romeo's yes. attention and you can see he's so vulnerable there I'm getting goosebumps just yeah about it. yeah 
And then when he, like, by my heel, I care not, another great scene. I'm like, yeah, this is the my sexual awakening right here. <laughs> when he puts his boot up on the table, like, holy yeah, crap. Yeah, mine's a different boot, putting out a, a cigarillo, but that's okay. <laughs> Still, hey. <laughs> Look, um, I, like, I, I will always love Tybalt just for his sheer depth and breadth of emotion. But, like, now that I'm older and more settled, Benvolio's where it's at, man. He just wants everybody to get along. <laughs> Poor Benvolio. I know, I know. It's such an intense performance, this Mercutio. It's just so good. Yeah, it, doesn't it? It kind of explains, like, he goes off in this wild tangent, basically. But at the end, Romeo is the one who kind of is able to bring him back and says, like, thou talks of nothing. Yeah, he brings it back to being like, oh, yeah, I talk about dreams and dreams are nonsense. And then Benvolio is like, yeah, you're both full of wind. Let's go. <laughs> both just full of hot air. Okay, so I want to talk about Romeo being the OG emo because Romeo craves passion and romance, and I think that's a huge part of his personality is that he's, like, dying to fall in love with someone. Mm. He wants the grand romantic expression before he's even sure of who she is. He's willing to die for her, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is something that I think he infects Juliet with. He's ready yeah. to die in the beginning and he even says to her, you know, my life were better ended by their hate than death prorogued waiting, wanting of thy love. So like, if he can't have her, he'll die. And mm. he puts them both in precarious positions by being like, come on, get me. And it's just like, come on, dude. Yeah, because this is the thing. He was just as passionate and just as obsessed as Rosaline. But the difference is that Rosaline he'd never spoken mm. to her so Rosaline never reciprocated mm -hmm. whereas Juliet does reciprocate and also wasn't Rosaline meant to be a nun or going into the like she was going into a convent right she was meant to be chased to yeah. like promised her she was like a novice or something right yeah so she was but never actually regardless available. if he had if she had so much to smile to them you know it would have sent him into another whole yeah. tizzy so because Juliet reciprocates his his affection or his like obsession I guess it spirals into this yeah. thing and then, you know, Father Lawrence says, you know, because he says, thou chides me oft for loving Rosaline, for doting, not for loving. Because that's what yeah. he does. He dotes. He doesn't, like, he doesn't really know what love is. Like, that's what Father Lawrence is like, oh, okay, so now you're in love with someone else. But she also is in love with you. I, I think that my reading of that is that Father Lawrence sees that Romeo is just, he's going to be impulsive no matter what. And the best he can do is counsel him, right? But he also thinks mm -hmm. that Romeo is as good as his word. So he will follow through yeah. on a marriage and he will be a good husband and he will be, like, he's not going to be abusive or unkind no but that's the thing like Romeo actually has a really good reputation like even I think I don't know I can't remember if this is in the film but definitely in the, the original play there's this whole thing about the townspeople speaking highly mm. of Romeo so he has got a good reputation with people and that's why they tolerate him at the Capulet feast yeah. right because it's like mm, he's not a troublemaker yeah, when Benvolio catches up with him at Sycamore Grove Beach you know they're sort of talking and he goes oh what fray is this like he's not he's not involved in the, the fighting he doesn't yeah. want to do it the part where his negative like the negative passion overtakes him is at the death of mercutio like that's yeah, when he really yeah. becomes the montague who fights like that's when he goes and avenges mercutio but not before then i wonder if that's the first death he takes right because he is so stunned at the end of that like he is so immediately kind of horrified yes, by what he's done yes i noticed that too and i think you're right i think he stayed out of it until this point and just locked himself away with his bad poetry and his cigarettes and his teen heartthrob look yeah, and then it's only towards the end when he thinks he's got nothing to live for, like he's already made the decision that he's going to die, that he goes wild and is like shooting at cops and threatening people and yep. yeah, carrying it's, on. Uh, Mercutio's death is what tips him over into the passion of like death. And I think there's something about their relationship that can only end in death. So like it, it's like a spiral that tightens and tightens and tightens and tightens. And the only thing at the bottom of the spiral is both of them being dead because they're too involved in each other and like the stakes get higher and higher and higher 
and it happens so quickly and like everything falls like dominoes. I don't know how to explain it really, but I just feel like the passion is so integral to their relationship that they keep upping the stakes. Like Mm. Juliet is kind of reasoning through it. She's like, maybe we can just go away or something. But then, you know, when she finds out that her, her father has basically promised her to Paris, she takes a gun to the priest and is like, I long to die. Yeah. Well, that's a bit dramatic. Like, um, and, and, and this is why I think he comes up with this half-cocked plan to, okay, we'll, we'll give you a poison that looks like death. Because if you're willing to kill yourself, you'll be willing to take a poison that looks like death, right? And then I'll tell Romeo, and, and he'll come back, and then you guys can away together. Like, this is a desperate guy trying to prevent, which is like, I mean, I don't know much about Catholicism, but I do know suicide is considered a big no-no, right? Mm. So he's, he like, his job as yeah. priest is to not have that happen. I just think it's such a folly, like the whole plan is folly, oh, yeah. right? Because he's like, yeah, 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 we'll fake your death and then I'll write to Romeo. Okay, <laughs> sure. Why does Romeo need to know about this at all? Like, why couldn't he just fake her death and then just smuggle her out of the church and send her to Mantua? Why do you have to involve him where he has to sneak back into town to pick her up? Like, what is going on? I, like, I feel like, why didn't he know that Balthazar would have been checking on things? Yeah, and like Romeo says to Balthazar, don't you have any? Letters? Do you have a letter yeah. from the priest? So why not just give Balthazar the letter? Why are you entrusting it to some rando? And then also his solution is like, I'll write to him again. Okay, because that worked really well the first time. Why are you not just sitting at Ro- like Juliet's side waiting for her to wake up? Because you know she's gonna wake up. I just I don't understand. Yeah, yeah, and look, I mean, it falls down if you do that, but but <laughs> but that's okay. It- one thing that's really different in the movie from the original play is I don't think they ever actually interact, but in the movie they do. She sees that he's dying in the film, whereas in the play it's like he's gone, she wakes up and she's like, what the heck? Yeah, and in the play she he kills Paris as well, so she's got Paris and him there dead. Like, great, good good times. Um, it's, it's not great, but I think that, that the fact that you then get that last moment of them together is what makes it so powerful in, in our like in our culture and our reading because we have all of these missed chances stacked up but we do get the emotional satisfaction of knowing that they are still in that place together and still will go to the greatest lengths to preserve the purity of their love right like that's what it feels mm. like to me their passion needs to be protected at all costs even at the cost of their own life which is hugely problematic and not great but that's that's kind of where i landed on where they both feel yeah i really i also really like that they are aware of each other at the end that they have that moment like it increases the tragedy oh yeah hardcore team me has never recovered i know i just remember like bawling my eyes out the first mm-hmm. time on well, probably still a few times depending when i watch it sometimes still gets me when he walks into the church for the first time i'm like this church has got too many neon lights in it but okay <laughs> what is their energy bill <laughs> They don't care. And this is the other thing, right? Look at all of the like tricked out cars. These people are so wealthy. They don't care about the heat of the planet. They can they can drive these low riders that are basically like Franken cars, but like luxury Mad Max Franken cars. It was 1996. They didn't know about climate change. Oh yes, change. they did. <laughs> oh man. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I just yeah. I really like that moment it's a hard moment it's the hardest one of all i I remember somebody i knew who really loved this movie like lived and breathed this movie just hated claire danes's crying at the end but i felt like it's such a claire danes her acting is so amazing like the fish tank scene where she like jumps back to give that little last smile at the end oh it's like she looks young she looks excited to be in love i buy it i believe it she is such a believable teen girl right 
And that crying is so believable yeah. of that moment of pure heartbreak. You know, when you're like really heartbroken and you do a little ugly cry. Like that is so. Thank you. That we is need it. an ugly cry. Like I don't want to see anybody being pretty. I want if girls are gonna fight and cry i want them to fight and cry like actual people do and i love that they're both like leo looks young she looks young it makes sense because they're young and dumb and in love and i love also like one of the things that i love is just when he has his death and he just have that final tear like dripping down his cheek it's so good i just incredible oh the one that gets me is when he kills tybalt and he realizes what he's done and you get that close-up of his face and he just stands there and he's like, oh my gosh oh my gosh oh my gosh what have i just done yeah because you get that close-up on his face for so long and like you're aware that he was you know jack from titanic and that you know he's this teen heartthrob guy but also the whole time you're looking at him like oh my gosh this is the kid who's just killed the first person they've ever killed mm-hmm. and he didn't want to do mm-hmm. it and that's when you really get the real crime of passion, right? Because he fires that gun so many times. Unnecessary amount of shots that he fires into Tibble, mm. right? Because he is so swept away by his emotion. He's so swept away by this, like, knee-jerk reaction he's had to Mercutio's death. And again, Benvolio tried to stop him, and ben he just, like, threw him out of the MVP. car. Come on, this guy. Oh, and when Captain Prince, like, asks Benvolio what the heck has happened here, and he's, like, so shook up by trying to recount the story. But he tells the oh, truth. This is why Benvolio is a stand-up guy. I just love him. Sorry, I'm just getting a little emotional. He tries his best. I also just want to give a shout out to the bite my thumb scene because I love it so much. Oh, yes, yes. So I want to talk about that a little bit because it's it's in my tangential marginalia, but following on from the prologue, which says two households alike in dignity, you get the two little offsiders and they have the vanity plates, Cap 005, Mon 005. So they really mm-hmm. are alike in dignity. Even these two sets of like three boys or whatever are alike in dignity. I love that parallel. I know, it's so good, but I do feel like, I feel like the Montague boys are a bit more laddish than the Capulet boys. Like, I just feel they're like your rough and tumble Mm -hmm. types, right? And I just love that whole section where it's like, is the law on our side if I say... And Gregory's like, no! (laughs) Samson's like, uh, no. (laughs) Do you quarrel, sir? Quarrel, sir? No, sir. I love it. It's one of the most often quoted things in our house. (laughs) Do you quarrel, sir? Oh, no, do you bite your thumb at me? I love it so much. And it also reminds me of Aaron Burster, yeah. which um, is just a whole new thing now. Okay, so like part of the the Montagues being more laddish, we spend more time with them as a unit and like Romeo and his peers as a unit than we do with Juliet. And that's because Juliet has no friends. She doesn't go anywhere. No. She's not allowed to go anywhere. Her nurse, aka her nanny, is her best friend, played by the amazing yeah. Miriam Margulis by the way, who was Professor Sprout. Oh. And she's an amazing actress, but the brown face isn't great, so we should just acknowledge that. Mm. Um, but Juliet has no friends. She's not allowed out. And I think part of the reason that Juliet is so much more careful in her passion is because she doesn't really know how to interact outside of her very limited world. Mm. That's a good Yeah, call. and her dad even says, like, my child is yet a stranger in the world, which, you know, is sort of kind of to put Paris off in the beginning. But I wonder if that's not actually, like, because she just hasn't been out in the world. Like, it's not just, oh, you know, she's young, let her be a little bit older before she gets married. But also, like, she literally doesn't go anywhere or do anything. She has no experience. She doesn't understand what people want from her, what is expected of her. And therefore, because she hasn't had that, like, time to go out and be in society, she doesn't really know how to navigate it. Which is why I think her passion, Mm. when when it erupts, so extreme. Like, she has to be married. She she doesn't want to be a bigamist. So she'll just kill herself. Like, what? That's crazy. Yeah. (laughs) That's a big step from... Maybe we can just change our names, you know? Hmm. It's interesting you mentioned that initial scene with Paris and what's his name? Fulgencio. Fulgencio, yeah. 
Because, you know, Paris says, younger than she, our happy mother's maid, and Valencia says, Valencia says, and too soon Marit are those so early made. Which, if you take your reading about Lady yeah, Capulet, Gloria, right? Yeah. Like, you could be talking about And her. I think that's what it is. I think that their marriage has not been a happy one for various reasons. I mean, he's off with other girls, other women at the ball. Mm. And we see that that's just treated as normal. And she's weeping yeah. over Tybalt. And mm. that's just in the text, but it's not commented on. Like, it's not metatextual. Yeah. So... They're not happy. They're not a happy family. And her, and her mother in the classic thing where, you know, Juliet says, oh, sweet mother, like, don't cast me away. And her mom's like, I'm done with you. And that is 100% a woman who is withdrawn and is protecting herself and is pulling away in order to like try and rein herself in. That's not that's that's just somebody who doesn't have enough bandwidth to look after someone else. And it sucks. But that's what it is. Like, her life will be so much worse if she allied herself with her daughter against her husband. And she has to make that call. Yeah. And it's terrible. But then again, like, having a difficult teenage daughter who would probably be fine married to this perfectly reasonable guy. Well, this is the problem, right? Because nobody knows why she's yeah. acting the way that yeah. she is. It's the same with Romeo. Like, no one knows. Like, th this is another moment of folly mm. for me is, like, Romeo turning down Tybalt's challenge with no explanation. Like, what did he think was going to happen there to be like, you know, you can't know why I treat your name the same as my yeah. own, you know, like... So good Capulet, whose name I tender as dearly as my own be This satisfied. just sounds weird but with no context. With no yeah. context. And I don't understand why they don't just tell people. Well, the, <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, I can't get, I can't actually marry him because I was secretly married to Romeo. Whoops. We were going to tell you later. I'm not sure what the mechanism is there and it's not really explained in the story, but that's fine. That's fine. I think he was on his way to tell Mercutio when, like, it seems like he came out of that so excited and ready to see his friend. And then he was like, oh my gosh, Tybalt's here. And of course he doesn't know because Tybalt has sent his a letter father. to his house but, but he has not gone home he's been running around getting married and being a general menace and so he doesn't know and like Mercutio also doesn't know why he's acting like that so he's like you know oh calm vulnerable oh dishonorable vile submission yeah. right like he can't stand the fact that Romeo is just lying down and Following taking the it the rules of the duel when actually dueling because yeah. he thinks that he should just get it over with and shoot double which is a fair point like Tybalt is not going to leave unless there's blood. But then Tybalt is also so horrified by the fact that Mercutio is dying, right? Like, he has that look on his face as, mm. as you know, Mercutio is stumbling around. It's too far. And I think it's so interesting that it takes place on a stage. Like, you know, Mercutio gets up on the stage and he's like, tis a spud a scratch. Yeah. Ask me tomorrow and you'll find me a grave man. Great Gallows line. humor. But he's so mad, too, because even when he's joking, he turns around and he says, they've made worms meat of me. Like, he's, he's not like, yeah. oh, I'm on my way to meet my maker. He's like, he's talking about, like, the gritty gross part of death he's not talking about like Juliet when she said and when Romeo dies cut him into little stars and place him in the heaven like mm. there's none of that with him he knows what's gonna happen and he knows he's gonna die and he's very pragmatic and yeah. realistic about it and it ticks him off like he's furious and that's why we've got a plague upon both your houses right yeah. because he's so angry and he still like challenges Romeo at the end like why did you get between us it's, it basically says it's your fault I'm yeah. dead which wow Nice yeah, time. I think that this supports my reading of them as having been in a relationship at some point that was definitely more on Mercutio's side than Romeo's because Romeo is like falling in love with whoever all of the time anyway. And Mercutio is madly mm. jealous of this, right? So this is what it reads like to me. But he just wants to hurt Romeo so much. And when you care about somebody who doesn't care about you back and you see the way that they're an idiot and you can't help but love them, you find that same contempt. Like it's almost mm. like self-hatred, but it's contempt for them. And that's that line you said, you know, the calm submission 
dishonorable vile submission. submission. That that yeah. is the contempt that he feels for Romeo. But I think it mirrors unto himself too, right? Like he's just let it happen. Mm. He's let himself follow Romeo around. He can't get him to pay enough attention to him. And he gets so angry when Tybalt first arrives and he says like, you know, thou consorts with Romeo. And he's like, consorts. Yeah, basically calling their relationship out. And he's like, you make us minstrels. And he's like, thou dost protest too much. That arrow hit its mark, I would say. But I think that was a direct response. Like he kind of provoked Tybalt by threatening his masculinity yeah. by like flinging himself around and insinuating that a bunch of stuff that Tybalt really couldn't stomach. Like to me, it felt like a cultural nod to the like machismo. You can't challenge someone's masculinity. And that's very in line with Tybalt's whole persona as this kind of like, you know, bravo. Yeah, he is this man, but he's very dramatic, but controlled in that drama. And he's very, as you said before, he respects the rules yes. of engagement because as soon as Romeo turns up, he just turns it off with Mercutio. He's like, oh, I'm not mad at you anymore. Here's my man. Good day. He even says like, like, peace with you or peace to you. Good man. My, or my man is here. Like he, he's immediately like, hmm. oh, we're done. And like Mercutio can't do that. He can't switch off because he's too invested in Romeo, yeah. right? So he can't disengage like that. Okay, I want to talk a little bit more about Romeo losing it when Mercutio is killed and his vengeance, where he he's holding Tybalt's gun to his own head, right? And mm, he's saying, mm-hmm. either thou or I or both must go with him. And that is, he says that three times. And it's so... Oh, yeah. Yeah. His voice is breaking and it's still so a baby. Like the fact that the fact that we have these actual teenagers, like on his wedding night, he had a pimple. I saw it in all the close ups. I love to see this. I love to see humans looking like humans. Like no one was so pretty. Juliet looks like a teenager. She's in a schoolgirl uniform when she goes to make confession. Mm-hmm. Like you sort of know she's young, but then you see her in a uniform and you're like, oh, this kid's still in high school. She shouldn't be yeah. getting married. Don't let her get married. <laughs> no, it's irresponsible. I mean, okay. She wants to marry someone her own age. It's a bit weird, but whatever. We'll say it's fine. But don't let, like, she's a kid. Oh. Dare I invoke Bella Swan? <laughs> <laughs> it's always going to come back to Bella. We. It, it always comes back to Hasplot through Bella. We love Twilight. We love um, Harry Potter. It's okay. Yeah, Romeo is so intense when he does that. And Tybalt doesn't shoot him. Why not? Well, I think because he realizes that he's crossed a line when he killed Mercutio, right? Like, he's he's not trying to start anything. He's trying to get away. He has mm. messed up and he's trying to save his own life, right? Like, he doesn't go for the gun to shoot Romeo. He goes for the gun so that Romeo doesn't get the gun. What I noticed is at the end when Mercutio was dying, Tybalt was almost like Romeo when he kills Tybalt. He's just standing there shocked and it's his man that pulls him away that makes mm-hmm. him flee. Like, otherwise he was just going to stand there in shock. But obviously his people were like, ooh, this is not going to go well for you. We better hightail yeah, it out yeah. of here. Abra's the one with the sin grill, though. Um, and Gregory and Samson. Samson is Jamie Kennedy with the black eye. Um, mm. And look, I just think I love so much about the way the Montague boys are styled because they do seem like they're all really good friends. And they don't seem to have, like, a pecking order, even though Benvolio is clearly in charge of everyone. Yeah, yeah, yep, yep. Yeah, because yeah, he's, like, the higher up, yeah. right? He's, he's the, the older cousin that everyone looks up to. Yeah, you don't have that with the Capulets, right? Because I feel like you don't cross Tybalt, so everyone is always subservient. It's very it. much more like a clear hierarchy, yeah. Yeah, which again falls into that whole thing about the Montagues are not actually like, yeah, they're, they're causing some trouble, but they're not like actively involved the way that the Capulets are out there enforcing the rule, basically. Yeah, I think that the difference is that the Capulets have something to prove and the Montagues don't mm. feel like they do because there's much more give and take with the parents as well. So the thing that really strikes me is Fulhensia was hitting his child, his wife tries to intervene and he hits her too he hits the nurse mm. he like he's cruel to everybody he hits everybody in his family basically like he's he's a real piece of work but when in the beginning we see the montagues and you know um romeo's father goes give me my long sword and his mom is like 
you will not stir a foot to seek a foe. And he listens. Like, she she says, mm. don't do this. And he goes, oh, yeah, you're right. So there's definitely something different. Like, their marriage is not as troubled. Volatile. Yeah, yeah, not as volatile. Like, And she worries about Romeo. And, and, you know, you can see his father kind of going, yeah, I see. He's not doing too well. And, like, how is he? And, you know, and then Benvolio goes, look, I'll, I'll go talk to him if you let me. And, and they say, mm. okay. Or family that seems to really care about each other. Do you think that's because he's a boy and Juliet's a girl? I mean, that it is it is probably part of it that he's the only, the son and heir, you know? Mm. Because he's talked about and treated like a person and she's a thing, right? I mean, what does her father say? You know, and you be mine, I give you to my friend, and you be not hang, mm. beg, starve. He's not messing around. He, he views her as chattel. Which is so interesting because I think when he first has that conversation with Paris, you kind of get this feeling that, oh, he really cares about her and he's so calm, mm. like, you know, he's so gentle with her. He doesn't want her to be married too early, but then it just like immediately flips yeah. as soon as he feels he is questioned. I wanted to draw another quick parallel. Romeo is very close with Fire Lawrence, right? Like, it was clear mm. that he was an altar boy at one point and he's active in the church mm-hmm. and he goes there often and he talks to Friar Lawrence like they're friends yeah the younger boys know who he is mm. so there's that relationship there and I think that really speaks to Romeo's place in the community that he's well liked and he's well respected mm. um but when when they each say their respective farewells to their parents Juliet says farewell to her mother and Romeo says farewell to the priest and that's the last time he sees him alive right like he mm. doesn't go to the priest yeah. for counsel he goes to the apothecary and gets poison yeah so that's his like almost his trusted mentor but I I think he's really feels betrayed right because he asks Balthazar twice have you no letter for me from yeah. the priest and Balthazar's like no which frankly Balthazar what are you doing but never mind <laughs> like a 15 year old kid who's you know this rich kid's valet right he just loves yeah. Romeo like everybody else does I just think Romeo feels probably a bit abandoned by Father Lawrence because he hasn't received this letter and he's had to get this horrible news and then he just goes mad with grief I defy you stars which is so like I love that as a parallel as well because Julia talking about cutting Romeo into little stars and then he's like I defy you stars and again breaking breaking voice just throwing himself into that performance and I am fortune's fool another big moment as a person who was a teenager I was was cringing the whole time because I'm like oh my gosh they're being so outrageous like stop it people can see you but like as an adult I'm like oh my gosh they were really living their authentic selves like they didn't care who saw them they didn't care who was looking they were just their awful imperfect ugly crying selves but I feel like teenagers are like that anyway. Like if you, I've seen teenagers breaking up on train platforms and it's every bit as dramatic as like throwing yourself on the ground and being like no 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 never have feelings ever no no thank you <laughs> not in public anyway oh i wanted to just give a shout out to juliet because her cracking it at the nurse is one of my faves as well like one of my favorite scenes you know she's like how art thou out of breath when thou has breath to say to me that thou art out yeah. of breath so good yeah. you know when she's like how oddly thou repliest your love says it like an honest gentleman where is your mother mm-hmm. <laughs> so good she's so funny unrated juliet's humor yeah and Look, I love her relationship with the nurse and the nurse treats her like it's like a mother-daughter relationship. But Mm. the reason that she takes all of this into her own hands, the reason that she goes to Father Lawrence as a last resort is because the nurse betrays her by suggesting that she marry Paris and just kind of get on with it. Because I think the nurse just goes like, look, I've seen and done everything. I know how this is going to play out. It's not going to be what you want. So 
the sooner we can get you on board with this, you'll be happy. You will be happy. You might not feel mm. as passionately bestirred as you do now, but you will be happy. Like she's looking out for Juliet's entire future. And Juliet feels like this is the mm. one person who is her friend and her confidant and has cared for her, has betrayed her. Yeah, even she's not on board. So therefore, what hope exactly. is there? Exactly. And that's, I think that's what breaks her passion from like the hopeful, youthful love and turns it into something much darker and worse. And that's mm. when it starts to become the downward spiral for her. So when she doesn't get the backup from her mother and then from nurse, then she's like, okay, that's done. And when Romeo then goes and, and kills Tybalt, that's when, like when Mercutio is killed and he kills Tybalt, that's his, the start of his downward spiral. A bit of imagery that I really appreciated mm. in the film when I was watching it is the balcony scene happening in the pool, of mm. course, in this version. So they fall into the pool. Um, and there's a line in the play that doesn't actually appear in the film, but it says, call, Romeo says, call me but love and I'll be new, newly baptized. Henceforth, I'll never be Romeo. And I think it's so interesting that the line is on be newly baptized when it's just after they fall in the pool and come up for air. So that is him being baptized. So that line doesn't appear, but the line is there in yeah in the scene. I I thought the same thing happened, but earlier I thought that he was newly baptized as somebody who would shed Rosaline when he comes up for air mm, in the bathroom. When he and he drops his yeah. mask and he's done, like he's yeah. done pretending yeah. to be someone else. That's what I. That's how I've always viewed that. I love that. It's just like. Good yeah, it's not an accident that Mantua is so dry because water has been mm. such a huge theme throughout the movie for all of them. Yeah, Mantua is just a dusty not nightmare. It's like Mad Max level craziness. Yeah. What I also noticed watching it again this morning was just when Balthazar turns up, he overtakes the mail yeah. truck, right? So Romeo's already missed this letter once. And then he gets in the car and they drive off again. And just as the postman is like walking up to his trailer, like the postman watches them drive away. And I'm like, these misconnections are doing my oh, head in. it's the worst. I do love that it's called Post Post Haste. Yeah, Such it's a great. Good, and um, do, you love, do you love Bachelor of the Year on Timely magazine? <laughs> <laughs> now it's yeah. in everybody's like the security guards reading it her mother has a copy like there's so much work put into like the background stuff yeah and he's like bachelor of the year right and then he's an astronaut at the dress-up party or at the ball and i'm like he's just like the all-american kind of so wholesome dream right um the other bit of marginalia i just wanted to give a shout out is tim mccrucio when he says about tibbles the very butcher of a silk button i just think that's so good such a good it line is. How about you? Do you have anything else you'd like to share? Um, yes. Sorry, there was just somebody walking outside my window and I was like, are they yelling? But no, they were just singing a song very loudly. Um, <laughs> so I think the interesting thing, the one that really stuck out to me on all my readings is that the apothecary doesn't want to give Romeo the poison. And mm. Romeo basically pays him an exorbitant amount of money to, to let him yeah. buy it. And, you know, the apothecary eventually does relent, but he says, my poverty, but not my will consents. And Romeo says, I pay thy poverty, not thy will. And that to me is the entire problem with the Montagues and the Capulets is that they have money. So they've always mm. just been able to make things go away. Privilege, right? Yeah, privilege, wealth. They can burn down a petrol station and cause a riot in the city. And guess what? Like they just get a slap on the wrist. And the prince is fed up with mm. it. Like this has been happening for a while. And he's just like, guys, this has to stop. I'm putting mm. my foot down now all of this property damage both like Tybalt and Benvolio should have been in jail sorry but they should have and they, yeah. they just went home They're like Benvolio went to the beach afterward <laughs> you know? and if they had been in jail then none of this would oh have happened gosh, for real yes I think that was just a part where we really see Romeo not like kind of rejecting that feud but just using the privilege that he's always had and saying you know here's my gold take my money mm. like he's hard and he's unkind and yeah he's paying for something that no one should have access to 
and yeah. he's getting it because he's privileged but it's a terrible thing and he's so dramatic as well like because he's so used to there being no consequences to yeah. any of their actions like when he's banished he's like banished like this is worse than death friar lawrence is like you're an idiot it is not worse than death and i love also that he friar lawrence is like thou art thou happy tybalt who would slew thee you slew tybalt thou art thou happy it's like basically og why are you never happy with anything like the world is at your feet and you're still whinging yeah. at yeah. me and look fair enough I-, I know that friar lawrence makes a lot of really questionable decisions but everything that happens he sort of looks at the situation and goes how do we make the best of this right and he tries to warn them he mm. says like love moderately like lol as if they will but you know he gets this opportunity he's like right the whole city is in chaos because of these feuding families maybe i can heal them with this marriage mm. like yeah i'll take this opportunity and um, he's trying to prevent a suicide so he comes up with this terrible plan and he tries really hard the, the best way he knows how mm. to to get this letter to romeo but it just doesn't get there in time i mean he, he more he more than tried to get there i don't know i just i feel really bad for him because i feel like he was trying to, to make the best of a bad situation yeah, and he was trying to solve a lot of problems at once and also you know i really get the vibe that he's like a, a recovering addict himself so because mm. aren't his first lines about you know vice i wrote them down yeah somewhere. when he has that little spiel virtue itself turns vice misapplied and vice sometimes by act and action dignified so he's basically saying like virtues can become a problem and vices the things that we use to cope can sometimes be the thing that save us like it's, it's a bit of a a, a twisty turny thing there but i love it mm. just mean and then he you know he does a shot of jack daniels or whatever so he's not perfect it's a hard place to be a priest i'm just putting it out there these people would be doing your yeah. head is in. he the only cast member who spoke in iambic pentameter pete postlethwaite i think he is mm. he was in time i think so. no one else was in time everybody else spoke like just as if they were talking yeah but i did wonder about that as well because a lot of the lines get chopped and mm. cut in half and they only say half the line so it does ruin the, the flow the yeah flow. i think if they had been able to make that work it would have been a bit more cohesive but i wasn't too worried about it it still works as a text it still works as a faithful telling of the play it still conveys the spirit of Absolutely. the play and I love all of the visual choices that help to reinforce the story they're telling. Yeah, I agree. I think it was very cleverly done. Really was. And yeah, it's like, you know, super heavy on the pop imagery and it's like really fast cuts and everything. But I think it lends itself, like I said before, to the speed and the frenetic energy of Yeah, it happens over like itself. four days or something, right? Three days? It's like hmm. Monday to Thursday. And it is just like high intensity, high stakes. People are making choices all the time. Things are happening all the time. Flash, 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 you know? I think the thing I love the most about this film is that idea that you could meet somebody and instantly know. Like, I love the idea of love so much. I don't think that it's true that you could have that kind of intense and pure connection, but I love the idea that it's true. I love the hope that it's true. I think that love has to grow like anything. I think connections are not instantly mm. forged. I think that, you know, if they'd spent a couple weeks together, they might have found things about each other that maybe didn't work out. But that's real, and we don't want to see realism all the time. Yeah. It can be both a hopeful thing and a cautionary tale, this film. I mean, because when you break it down, what do they actually know about each other? Nothing. Yeah, and so you either you either go into it going, oh, these kids who know nothing about anything, or you go into it being like, but their love was so strong it overcame and like it overpowered every other sense. Like you can take it either way. You can read it however you want. And mm. I really love the flexibility of Shakespeare in that you really do get the choice of how you read it. That's mm. great. Oh, I think I've said all that I could say without devolving into <laughs> a gibbering fool. Um, do you have a character you want to spotlight? Yeah, so I was going to spotlight Juliet. Um, I think she's actually just really hard done by. Like, she tries 
to be moderate. Like when she first has the balcony scene, she says to him, I don't feel good about this contract. It's happening too fast. We need to slow down. And okay, yes, then the next day she gets married. But she's trying. And you know, like her mother is absent for whatever reason. Her father is just going to sell her off to be married. And he threatens to cast her out if she doesn't do what he says. Her nurse, you know, lets her down at the last minute. She's got no friends. She's got no one to turn to. And Father Lawrence kind of really drops the ball on her. And then Romeo and Tybalt ruin everything. These two men that she loves loves basically just cause a scene and you know she's just doing her best within the environment that she's in and i think she gets unfairly maligned lord knows she's trying so here's my shout out to juliet she deserved better she really did she deserved a life yeah her own life on her own terms yeah she never actually valued herself she only like she was so willing to die for her love it was more important to protect the love than it was to protect her own life that's what I really took from it and it made me so sad yeah I also just think she didn't want the life that she was gonna have without that love right like there was no life there was no future what she gets married off to Paris she didn't want that like there was nothing else she had no options basically and yeah Everyone deserves better. Everyone deserves options and the opportunity to live life on their own terms. So Absolutely. Um, who did you want to spotlight? Well, I think I've said it a lot, but Benvolio, <laughs> he's the MVP. We first meet him and he's cautioning against getting involved in any phrase. And then he's only trying to keep the peace and he tries to sort of negotiate with Tybalt, who won't have a bar of it. You know, he's mm. he observes the rules of the duel, but he doesn't really want to. And, you know, they stand down because Captain Prince is making them stand it. But like he he doesn't want to be this person. He doesn't want to have this. He doesn't want any more confrontations. Mm. He volunteers after he's just been arrested and nearly killed, right? He volunteers to go and talk to his mopey younger emo cousin, (laughs) who he then tries to track down the next day. He and Mercutio are good mates. He's just a really good person. And this is the other thing I noticed. Everybody trusts him. The prince asks him what happens, and he tells him and believes him because that is how Benvolio is so trusted to tell the truth and to be accurate in his responses. Mm. That there's no more, like, there's no investigation needed. Like, he, he says, Yeah, it was Romeo, but that's because Tybalt's and Mercutio. Like, he, he, he will say the whole truth, but he's not going to protect his family just because they're his family. Yeah, he's got integrity. He really does, and I think maybe the only brain cell yeah. in the entire cast. So I mean, yeah, he also tries to talk Mercutio, like, let's go inside because there's well, just Mercutio's trouble Mercutio's shooting here. fish because why not? What else is he supposed to do? They didn't have TV. Oh, yes, they did. What am I saying? They have TV, but they also have guns and money and drugs, so why watch a TV show when you can... Shoot some fish. Yeah, but anyways, yeah, Benvolio, MVP. Yay. I think that is a good call. He is just a good guy and he yeah is let down by everyone around him repeatedly for sure he deserved better also and can i also say i love that um when he takes his gun holster off you see tan lines so he actually wore it enough out that he has tan lines from it and i'm like this poor guy who was cast in the movie had to walk around with these weird tan lines from a gun holster <laughs> that he had to wear on a set on a beach for weeks it just made me laugh <laughs> I really was really into the whole gun holster aesthetic. I'm like, wow, who knew this was a thing? I'm kind of into. Yeah, well, they all had special ones, right? Like Romeo's yeah. was black with white embroidery, and um, Benvolio's was red leather, and like Tybalt's. Yeah, and he his um the Capulet boys wore velvet Kevlar vests. So extra. So extra. But did you see he had the Sacred Heart tattooed on his chest? I did see that. The yeah. bleeding heart of Christ on his chest, and that's where he was like. And Romeo shot him right through it. So and he was martyred, basically. Abra has, I think, the Virgin Mary on his back. Wild, huh? I love the religious iconography so much. It really, like, because it does make 
it makes you go, oh, yeah, they're super Catholic. Of course they have to get married in order to make out. <laughs> of course Juliet's like, okay, you're really cute. Any other part belonging to a man? Wink, wink. Tomorrow let's get married. Like, that's what she thinks she's supposed to do. She can't just go off and have a physical relationship with this guy. No, she has to get married to him. And Romeo's romantic, so he's going to say, yeah, of course. Of course, because he's Captain Nemo. Oh, my gosh. Well, I'm. thank you so much for watching this with me. I'm. It was a lot. I'm glad we did it. It was really fun to take this movie that I have loved for so much of my life and really like dive into it. And I'm glad that you actually have some knowledge of the play because I was just like, do do do. I just really loved revisiting it. I love Baz Luhrmann films across the board, including Australia. I don't care. Come for me if you want. I love it. I haven't it. seen it. I haven't seen Gatsby either. Oh, Gatsby's good. I mean, like Gatsby, the source material leaves something to be desired. I'm just putting it out there. <laughs> so it can only be so good. But again, amazing soundtrack. Like Baz Luhrmann just nails the soundtrack. The man mm. cannot go wrong. You know he's making an Elvis film? That sounds like it'll be fun. It's supposed to come out next year. I just want to watch Strictly Ballroom again. Oh, Strictly Ballroom is so good. It's just so Australian. It's so great. So yeah, it was really nice to revisit this with you and just like, I love Romeo and Juliet. Even though I'm not a romantic, as you know, and I don't really like reading romance or anything like that, I just absolutely love this play. So yeah. Yeah, it's because it can be anything you want it to be. It can be a love story or a cautionary tale or like just finding the one person who you resonate with and really sympathizing with the fact that they have the only brain cell. Oh. Well, next week, we're going to be starting our reading of The Raven Boys by Maggie Stiefvater, and we are super ready. So our so main excited. theme is going to be connection. So that should be really interesting, and I am really excited. Me too. I cannot wait. I know. It's going to be so good. Well, thank you, Jen. I'm so glad we did this. Me too. It's been a real highlight after a long week, and yeah, I can't wait for next week. I know. It's going to oh. be great. We'll see you then. See you then. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining Gen D and Gen V for this one shot. Martin Daily Pod is written, edited, and produced by Gen D and Gen V, with additional editing and production support by Simon B. If you enjoy listening, please rate and review the show on your podcasting platform of choice. Feel free to write an email to say hi. The email address is hello at martinhaleypod.com. The intro and outro music is by Scott Buckley. The full show notes and additional content can be found at www.martinhaleypod.com